Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guests today on The Art of Range are Barb Hutchinson and Jim O'Rourke. Barb is a natural resources librarian at University of Arizona, and she has been working at retiring. Jim has been a range management professor at Shadron State College for a few decades. And again, I think I heard that Jim retired too some time ago, but appearances deceive. Retirement is a funny word. Uh, Jim and Barb, welcome. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Thank you, Tip. Yes, we are. You both have been doing this for some time. And I think it's, let's talk a bit about how you got into doing rangelands work as opposed to all the other things that a person could do with their lives. This is still not a real big social niche in the global scheme of things. Uh, we all happen to think it's important, but it, but it is a little bit unique. How did the two of you end up doing work related to rangelands? Mine is probably the most unusual story. Um, I started out as a librarian um, with a master's in library science and eventually a PhD in higher education, which may seem like an unlikely fit for range science and education, but I managed a special library for many years, the Arid Lands Information Center at the Office of Arid Land Studies at the University of Arizona. And this led to many interesting interdisciplinary projects, including the development of the Rangelands Partnership which Tip has uh, talked about before, but is this is n- nearly a 20-year collaboration among Western and Great Plains land-grant universities. Uh, the mission of the partnership is to bring quality information and resources about sustainable rangelands management to stakeholders, uh, and a variety of stakeholders, uh, through the creative use of technologies, and most specifically, a website and database, which now is called the Rangelands Gateway. Um, And I think some of these links are in the notes for this podcast. Um, So the partnership is all about collaboration and outreach. And it was through, it was actually at a time I was sitting at my desk and watching in 2015 videos coming out from the Natural Resource Conservation Service, NRCS, um, that were related to the International Year of Soils. And they were wonderful little small short clips that really taught taught me a lot about soils and had a greater understanding and I thought boy this is what we need we need an international year of rangelands and that sort of was the beginning of this latest round of of working towards that end yeah I think I've got one more question on that I'm just pretty sure this is the first time we've had a sure enough librarian on the podcast <laughs> Describe a little bit of what a natural resources librarian does. Well, traditionally in a in a university science library, and when we have science librarians, natural resource librarians that are part of the partnership, um, that's part of the the joy of it is that it's an interdisciplinary uh, kind of uh, effort, it, linking um, librarians, information science. Um, uh, information technologists and rangeland specialists uh, with, together to bring information to the public. And um, 
So a, a traditional science librarian would be working with students and faculty on the campus, working to answer questions about natural resource information resources. But um, in a special library like I worked, we actually gained funding for various projects. And it was through the Nash, a project with the National Agricultural Library back in 1995 that we first got started on um, developing a website about rangelands management. And it wasn't very long before we realized that doing that for Arizona was not really effective or efficient because the in, the issues that we were talking about, like invasive species and so forth, don't stop at political boundaries. And so that's how the partnership grew to this 19 land-grant university uh, collaboration. Yeah, I'm a committed bibliophile, so I'm prone to like librarians. And my experience with the Rangelands Partnership, which, as you mentioned, is a collaboration of range extension specialists and librarians, has only served to uh, confirm that fondness. Uh, Jim, what what has been your pathway toward being a range guy? Well, my uh, my introduction to uh, rangeland rangeland was in the late eighteen hundreds. That's a little bit older than I am, but uh, <laughs> um, my my family homesteaded uh, north of Gordon, Nebraska, in the late eighteen hundreds. And my granddad was a cowboy on the famous Spade Ranch in the Nebraska Sandhills, uh, one of the open range big ranches uh, for decades. And I could go on forever about the legal battles between Bartlett Richards, who owned the ranch, and Teddy Roosevelt and the mm. Range Cutting Act and Fence Cutting Act and all that stuff. But anyway, uh, my granddad was a cowboy uh, really involved with with grazing livestock on, on rangelands. That, uh, I think, uh, stimulated my father to, to get into the field of range management, and he's a graduate of Colorado State University in range in the 1940s um, when I was born. And so he worked for the U.S. Forest Service for his career in Colorado and Wyoming. And so uh, my all of my education was in range from day one. So I... I learned how to run transects and do all that kind of stuff and mark timber and count sheep and cattle with my dad working for the Forest Service before I was even in high school. Uh, I went on then to, with a bachelor's degree at Colorado State University in forest range management. I worked for the Forest Service in Arizona, uh, then went back for a, a master's degree at the University of Arizona. Uh, got drafted by the time I came back, uh, started a PhD at the University of Wyoming, uh, worked, uh, went to Columbia for a short period of time, uh, looking at ranches for a, a rancher over in Gillette, Wyoming. I uh, came back, milked cows for the winter, uh, not many range jobs in the middle of winter in Wyoming. Uh, then I went back to the University of Arizona. Uh, finished a PhD, and then I spent uh, quite a long time uh, in Africa. I spent eight years total, uh, two and a half years in Tanzania on the Maasai Range Livestock Project as a range specialist, uh, essentially an extension effort, uh, working with Maasai range officers, uh, working with uh, grazing practices with the Maasai tribe. 
then to uh, Morocco, uh, where we were helping establish range de- or different departments in their Institute of uh, Agronomy and Veterinary Medicine. And so my job was to set up the range program there, um, which we did. Uh, came back from that, and I uh, joined the range faculty at Utah State University. I was there for seven years. Then uh, we went to uh, Nigeria for two years, where I was training officer for, for the uh, for a World Bank livestock project in Kaduna. Came from there then to uh, Shattern State College in 1988, and so I've been here ever since. Uh, we've moved to the family ranch, which is south of Shadron, Nebraska. So we uh, run the ranch as well. Um, right after getting at, to Shadron, it was obvious to me that we're in the heart of rangeland. Uh, we're right in the uh, transition between Tallgrass Prairie to the east of us and the Nebraska sand hills and then hard hard ground to the to the west. So uh, I started a range management program at Shadron State College, which is now, if not the largest in student numbers, uh, one of the two or three largest programs, mainly because we, we cater to students who are going back to a farm or a ranch. It's not a program that's... Uh, trying to educate uh, graduate students and going on to faculty positions. A lot of our graduates do uh, work for government agencies, uh, for the NRCS or the Forest Service, BLM. But I, I retired in uh, 2002, uh, mainly because I was at that time uh, – well, I've been active in the Society for Range Management for a long time. I'm a 60-year member. Uh, this year, uh, I was on the board of directors. Uh, then I was elected to the, to the presidential chain. So I served as SRM president in 2002. Um, at that, during that same period of time, I was elected to the uh, continuing committee, which is essentially the board of directors of the International Rangeland Congresses. And so I began that in Salt Lake City in 1995 served on that continuing committee up till 2003, which was through the Townsville uh, meeting in Australia in 99, then the 2003 meeting in uh, in South Africa, Durban, South Africa. At that point, I was supposed to go off of the continuing committee, but nobody was willing to sit for president, so they asked me to service president, which I did then uh, for the meeting in Hohat, Inner Mongolia, uh, China, in 2008. Uh, when that Congress was over then, uh, I then started helping the other countries that were preparing for international rangeland congresses. And the person who was our secretariat at that time of the International Rangeland Congress, Gordon King, from Australia, uh, died at about three weeks after our next Congress in Argentina. He had been serving as our secretariat, which is the person who really uh, keeps the website up, the mailing address is up, and helps next countries uh, help plan their Congresses. So I then stepped into that position. I've been serving as the secretariat through the uh, 
Argentina Congress in 2011, uh, the Saskatoon uh, Canada Congress in 2016, and then our most recent, uh, just uh, last year, 2021 in, uh, in Nairobi, Kenya. And I still serve in that secretary position. But with regard to the to the uh, international year, Barbara had mentioned that um, she had had started some discussions in the outreach committee within SRM in 2015, and so she organized a meeting at the Corpus Christi meeting in 2016 of the out, outreach committee and the international affairs committee, and it was at that meeting that we really put our heads together on who we ought to start involving in, in getting this thing rolling for an international year. And it was after that, that then that we started putting a long list of people together, uh, a support group. Uh, I think it was a steering committee that we called it at, at first. Uh, that's when uh, Miriam Neamir Fuller uh, was added and Ann Waters Bayer. And those two ladies, along with Barbara, are the ones who have really carried this thing forward. So, yeah, let me interrupt you there. I don't think we've even announced yet that we're oh. talking about the international year. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but that's where we're at, definitely, in the interview. Uh, sure. I th and I think to announce this, I was just going to read directly from the press release. Okay. Uh, on the 15th of March, 2022, the United Nations General Assembly in New York unanimously declared 2026 the International Year of Rangelands and Pastoralists. This final approval is the culmination of an International Year of Rangelands and Pastoralists movement that grew over several years to become a global coalition of over 300 pastoralists and supporting organizations, including International Livestock Research Institute, the ILRI, and several United Nations agencies. And building on these efforts, the government of Mongolia and 68 co-sponsoring countries developed and put forward the resolution to the United Nations General Assembly. Uh, so that's the announcement. Probably most people that are in the world of range knew something about this, at least that it was going to be coming. But uh, it really is pretty significant uh, to have this declared as an international year. Uh, so we can jump into it. What is an international year for those that maybe have, you know, only heard of these things but never really thought about it? And uh, what was the process for that designation? You began to get into the history of that, and I think that's definitely worth talking about. At the uh, International Rangeland Congress in Inner Mongolia in Hohat, uh, Inner Mongolia, China, in 2008, we passed a resolution uh, that we would like to have the UN designated international year. And one of the members of the committee at that time was uh, a lady who worked for FAO in Rome, Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations in Rome. And she took it back to, to Rome and, and tried to work on it, but it didn't go anywhere because we weren't following the correct process. We learned, but it took us a long time to learn that process. Um, and so we, we passed a similar resolution at, uh, in, in Argentina, in Rosario, but the same thing. It was a resolution. There was no action taken. And then it was in uh, Corpus Christi when Barb and I and, and several folks got together and started organizing this steering committee, committee for an international year. 
where things started to happen. And so that summer uh, in 2016 at the International Rangeland Congress in Saskatoon, we passed another resolution, but we held a meeting at that point, both uh, virtually and, and in person, uh, to engage people in starting to put their heads together in how we do that. And that's when uh, Miriam Neomir Fuller, who had previously worked in the UN system, and Ann Waters Bear uh, were added to the to the system. So, Barbara, go ahead. Yeah, that's a wonderful introduction. Um, as you can see, it's taken us a long time to get to the point of actually having a designated year, international year. International years are, are wonderful ways of calling attention to particular issues and op possibilities um, uh, for gaining increased knowledge, I think, that will help improve policies and, um, and that whole interaction of social, economic, uh, environmental, and political issues. And um, so I think what happened... The main thing I think Miriam brought to the table is that she had connections at the UN Environment Program, UNEP, and it was actually at uh, a, at several UNEA, the UN Environment uh, Assembly meetings, that we actually gained some momentum internationally for putting together really a consortium of people that would work towards this end. And it took us a long time to figure out the process. We thought originally that we could go straight to the UN General Assembly and, and submit this proposal for consideration and it will be discussed and, and voted on and we, we could turn this around in a year. Well, that didn't happen at all and it took us a long time to understand that we needed to, there was a process that we needed to go through and, um, and, and that involved having a country come forward to spearhead a proposal for an international year. And we, have, of, co of course, we were originally talking about rangelands, but then we found out at the same time that there was a whole group of pastoralist uh, NGOs that were working towards um, – that also wanted an international year. And so it took us quite a while to have this discussion um, – amongst these two worlds to come together as one. And once we passed that hurdle, then we could focus on identifying a country to take this forward. And luckily, um, at I think it was at UNEA 4 that Mo the Mongolian government came forward and said that they would sponsor this proposal. Jim, you had more to add? Well, a good point that you made on, on countries taking it forward uh, very early on, uh, we, when we started the planning for the International Rangeland Congress in Nairobi, the Kenyans were, were very interested in leading this. And so they immediately uh, had a resolution passed and signed by the, uh, the Minister of Agriculture and by the, uh, their Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And they sent that resolution directly to the United Nations. So we thought, boy, we've we've done this correctly. We've we've got a country behind it, and it's gone to the UN General Assembly. Well, what we learned later on was it had to first go to a committee of agriculture, what's called COAG, C-O-A-G, uh, that is member countries of FAO, who then uh, 
agree on this resolution, and then they take it to FAO, and then FAO takes it to the United Nations General Assembly. So finally then, uh, as Barbara mentioned, the uh, government of Mongolia then took the resolution to COAG, and then it went to FAO and to the UN General Assembly. So it took us a long time to figure out this process, as Barbara said. Even though we, we thought we understood the UN system, we didn't really understand the process. Yeah, we should also say that all during this time, we are the steering committee that became the support group for the Mongolian proposal, uh, which involves people from all over the world in um, really almost every country. And it, we really had to garner letters of support. Um, at one time, we were supposed to, in order to get ready for COAG, uh, besides having letters of support for the the proposal from uh, organizations and individuals, we needed to also have side events. So a side event is a way to invite people to come and hear presentations, see videos, and make your pitch for what it is you're trying to do. And it was at in order to get ready for the normally those meetings would have been in person. Uh, for instance, the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations Committee on Agriculture normally met in person, but because of COVID, we had to, um, and we didn't hear about this till about two weeks before the meeting that we needed to prepare a virtual side event. So at that time, we started, uh, while we had a very preliminary website that was just sort of a place where we kept resources and background documents, we now took the web and turned it into what we called an online booth. And we collected videos from all over the world, um, telling stories about pastoralists, telling their own stories, and um, and showcasing the rangelands of the world and how they, these are all interconnected. And uh, and they have, we haven't even talked about some of the data, which is that um, more than half, now they're thinking 54% of the land surface is, is considered rangelands or grasslands or savannas. There's all kinds of words that we use. Maybe Jim want, will want to talk about some of these definitions. And um, yeah, so so it's it's just been a long process, and uh, but a very positive one in bringing all these worlds together. Am I right that we just came out of a UN decade on soil health and that we're now in a UN decade of ecosystem restoration? Yes. In fact, not only that, but a decade of family farming. And we have work, we are working with all of those um, initiatives as well. Jim, you have more to add there? No, I think you're right. Yeah. Yep. You're right on, Barbara. Yep. Well, I think this is exciting, probably because. I regularly find myself giving you know, the the elevator speech to people who think that range is the thing that you cook your breakfast eggs on. And I think the other thing that's maybe useful to talk about as we get into some of the um, messaging, some of the things that we're hoping to accomplish with this international year are misconceptions about rangelands. And in fact, even rangelands textbooks 50 years ago described rangelands by what they weren't. You know, it was everything that was left over after you excluded croplands, cities, open water, forest, you know, something that has 
a, a different, more specific use. But you know, more recently, we have described rangelands by by what they are, namely a, a land type or a, a vegetation type. And I think this can be one of the one of the major benefits of an IYRP. But maybe I think I first want to ask, uh, and I'm I'm probably not the first person who's wondering this. What is a pastoralist? Good question, Tip. Uh, one of the one of the documents that the uh, steering committee, the support group, developed. Uh, a couple of years ago was what we called word clouds um, because the designation, of course, is for rangelands and pastoralists. Rangelands a bit more understood around the world, but pastoralists is really not well understood, particularly in the United States. So this word cloud on pastoralists is a circle that has every name for any person that is involved with with uh, using of rangelands uh, throughout the world. And so to me, that word cloud is extremely important to have posted in extension offices, in banks, and in uh, rotary meetings, and, and every place in the U.S. To, to explain to ranchers in the United States that they are one. They are a pastoralist. A rancher, a cowboy, a cowgirl, or whatever, and and so that's that has to be one of the first efforts is to to bring everybody uh, into the discussion once they realize that they are a part of this and 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 uh, they've got stories to tell and and some very important things that they've done uh, to to really make the world a better place. Rangelands. Is a term that's less well known, I guess, around the world, or, or not as not as less well known as pastoralists, but uh, all all sorts of terms for what we call rangelands, uh, whether it be savannas or whatever, all the way around the world. And so we have another word cloud for that. But yeah, definitions is is important. Uh, sometimes we get a little bit too hung up on definitions, but the main thing is that we understand that we're all a part of this. Anybody that that uses rangelands in any way, uh, whether it be for hunting, for recreation, for for aesthetics, for or for livestock grazing, uh, they all all need to part be a part of this. And I think it's good that we, if we have an introduction here to. What are rangelands? Uh, how important are they? Yeah, and regarding pastoralists, just a couple more thoughts there. I think I have an association. Well, the, the, I guess the connotation that I have of that word is that it's a way of living that's s- somewhat broader than an economic enterprise. Uh, but I'm not so sure that that's very foreign to the way most ranchers operate in the Western U.S., even though we probably have different connotations for the word rancher versus pastoralist, you know, but survey data indicate that many ranchers, if not most ranchers are doing it because they love it and they think it's important, not so much because they're getting 10% rate of return on investment on it. (laughs) And so I think there's quite a bit of similarity between, uh, you know, what we might think of as pastoralism in another part of the world where you have 
a, a lifestyle that revolves around animal husbandry, raising livestock and moving with livestock, whether or not being a nomad is part of that. I'm not so sure that that's <clears throat> very much different than the way a lot of family ranches function uh, in the West in terms of being a lifestyle and not just a way of making some money. You know, Tip, you're 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 right on, absolutely. I mean, one good example of that is is the uh, concentration concentration that a lot of fo- folks have in Africa on mobility, and that mobility is often talking about uh, movement between countries or, or long distance moves. But U.S. ranchers are are involved in transhumance, and they're involved in mobility as well. Whether it's a short duration grazing system on a local ranch, or whether it's uh, uh, grazing in the summertime on rangelands and the wintertime on corn stalks, or whether it's uh, summertime on the mountains in Utah and the, and the wintertime on salt desert shrub in the wintertime, so uh, mobility uh, is used around the world, if, but in in a different sense, somewhat. But they're both sort, sorts of operators are are engaged in their livelihood uh, from rangelands. Yeah, and I, I think that we need to think of, of pastoralists as um, as stewards of the land and um, who've been caretakers for millennia over rangelands and grasslands around the world. There was a, I, I'm, I don't know if it would be helpful, but um, in the gap analysis, which was done under UNEP um, by a number of the people that are involved in the steering committee or the support group, um, have a have a definition of pastoralists who are people are people who ra- raise or care for wild or semi domesticated animals or domesticated livestock on rangelands and include ranchers, nomads, graziers, shepherds, and transhuman herders. And I think the word clouds that. Um, Jim discussed are uh, were a result of of looking at pastoralist terminology on Google and doing searches and coming up with all of the words that are used around the world for pastoralists. And then I think it's easier when you see that word cloud that you you can identify with one of those groups, and um, and and the same with with. Uh, a definition for rangelands because these are complex landscapes of grasslands or semi-desert grasslands, shrublands, woodlands, mountain meadows, and so forth. And I think it's important to realize that that there are multiple ways of talking about these lands, and but that they all we they have a significance for all of us. Yeah, and I like the I like your term, term uh, land steward. I think maybe outside of our own uh, social social group, people see ranching and even pastoralism as a kind of extractive natural resource industry, even if it's gentler than you know something else. But but you combine this idea of stewardship with the complexity of semi-arid landscapes, and uh, you realize that this is not simplistic work. 
Not at all. And in fact, it has direct relationship to clean air, clean water. The sequestration of carbon in the soils is, has been little understood in, uh, on rangelands. Um, the, the focus has been, and really rangelands have been undervalued in, in, as a solution to climate change. Um, and actually, I think there's new research that shows that there's more carbon stored in soils in rangelands than in forests. And so these are some of the misconceptions and we, that we want to inform through new research and through new education that what the International Year will provide us a new forum. You're right on, Barbara. I, uh, we've talked about the fa fact that 50% or greater of the land surface of the world is made up of rangelands. You know, think about driving from Mexico City to Edmonton, Alberta. You're in rangelands. Talk about driving from North Platte to Nebraska to San Francisco. You're in you're in rangelands. This is is drive through country for a lot of people, or close your eyes, take a nap kind of country. But they have no idea that that kind of country is uh, it makes up fifty percent of the land surface of the world. Now, how important is that? Uh, Barbara just talked about carbon sequestration. So let's talk about what that means. Uh, when a plant grows, uh, it takes in carbon dioxide from, from the air and gives off oxygen. So the carbon from that carbon dioxide that's taken in by the plant is stored in stems and leaves and also in the root systems. When that plant goes dormant, the stems and the leaves uh, die, fall onto the ground as litter. That litter then is converted into organic matter that builds soils, and that carbon is stored in the soil. But underground, the, the thing that we don't real, really realize a lot of times is that that root system is at least as large, if not larger, than the above-ground part of the plant that we see. And one-third of the root system in a grass plant uh, is is turns over annually. So in every three years, the entire root system of that plant uh, dies. It is added as organic matter. And then that carbon that's contained is stored in the soil. So if 50% of the land surface is rangelands and, and that sort of carbon sequestration has taken place, it's an extremely important, if not the largest storage uh, ecosystem in the world for carbon. Then when we bring in the, in the concept of grazing versus uh, not grazed, you know, let's go back and look at, at bison numbers. People want to criticize livestock sometimes, domestic livestock. There were 30 to 60 million bison in the just in the Great Plains of North America, there are only 30 million domestic livestock in the entire U.S. today. So, we are we are far less uh, stocked in in grazing animals in the Great Plains than there were with the bison. When that when a plant and 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 so therefore those plants evolved under grazing in order for those ecosystems to be maintained in the system that we wanted to see in, during bison days, uh, those plants have got to be grazed in order to, for those plants to, to stay in the system. When a, when a plant 
goes ungrazed, it stores carbon, but only until that plant goes dormant. A grazed plant, on the other hand, uh, is, of course, uh, storing storing carbon uh, as it's conducting photosynthesis. The part that is grazed off, of course, is, is passed through the animal and added as carbon in manure to the soil and build soils. Uh, but the plant that has been grazed then in its regrowth is conducting more uh, carbon sequestration. So there's far more uh, carbon sequestration occurring in a grazed plant than, than in a non-grazed plant. And so the importance of good grazing management uh, is is real really needs to be understood by uh, by the general public that that uh, as an example I, I do a lot of rangeland health work uh, and I've I've done rangeland health work on over 100 ranches in Nebraska and 95 percent of those folks are just doing a fantastic job the the, the, the range condition the carbon building the soil building uh, the healing of blowouts all of those things have improved dramatically over the time that my granddad was a cowboy in the sand hills of the of the uh, in 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 central Nebraska. Uh, you know that's the sand hills in Nebraska are the the, the largest uh, reclaimed sand dune in the world, and so and then it's all be because of good grazing management. So rangelands are extremely important to to the general public to realize that rangelands are storing the carbon that they are emitting from cars and buses and trains and and industrial activity. Jim, do you think that there's a possibility or the opportunity in all of this to uh, to have a little bit different? flavor in the language that comes out of some of the organizations associated with the United Nations regarding livestock, because it seems like most of what people hear, and this may be why, you know, when, you know, Joe Rancher in rural Nebraska hears that the United Nations has declared an IYRP, they may have a somewhat cynical response, because most of what they hear out of the UN is that livestock are destroying the earth not not helping to maintain a healthy carbon balance. Is there a chance I, to influence some of that, do you think? Yes, I think so. And in fact, uh, ILRI, the International Livestock Research Institute uh, that's headquartered in Nairobi, has really taken this on. And they're, they're a part of that, uh, that overall UN system. Uh, uh, and they are counteracting that, that view. Uh, so I, I I don't think that the UN really is is opposed to uh, uh, domestic livestock. I think uh, through the F Food and Agriculture Organization, I think they're behind animal agriculture. I, I think to me uh, the message uh, needs to be really local at at every country. Uh, we we've developed uh, ten eleven is it Barbara regional support groups around the world. And each one of those groups will then develop uh, messages. And I think Barb will talk about that in a little bit here. But when we when we look at that messaging, which you're talking about here, I think it really comes down to 
not just a country, but a, a state within a country and a county within a in a in a, in a state. Uh, I think it's messages to uh, the Chamber of Commerce in Chandler, Nebraska, uh, the 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 uh, Elks Club, the uh, uh, all of the all of the organizations that 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 meet to to bring those messages to those urban audiences. The, the livestock community, uh, the ranching community understands that carbon sequestration thing and, and the fact that methane production is far less on rangelands than all of the emissions that occur from other uses around the world. So, you know, when we, when we talk about urban audiences, uh, uh, we're not talking just about downtown New York City or downtown L.A. We're talking about downtown Crawford, Nebraska, uh, Shadron, Nebraska, uh, Casey, Wyoming. I mean, there, there, there are a lot of folks that are not aware of these facts. Yeah, and I feel like one of the things that's unique in, in rangelands-based livestock production as well is that it's, uh, there's this tie between ecological sustainability and economic sustainability that's unique. You know, on cropland, uh, you can you can pay for enough inputs to make a crop happen. But on grazed rangeland, ranch land, if you run it into the ground ecologically, you pass a certain point of degradation where it's no longer possible to make a living there. And I think that's intuitively understood by, by most ranchers. You know, part of that is we've been doing this long enough now that if, if somebody uh, is not protecting the productive capacity of their land they're probably not in business anymore and i feel like we at least i hear way more stories like what you described you know where the rancher says you should have seen what this looked like 50 years ago and they always mean that it looked worse then and that it looks better now Uh, and i don't think that story gets told very effectively either absolutely in fact uh we're we have a program going on right now at chatter state college and uh Pat Shaver, who's one of the co-authors of the Rangeland Health book, has has been giving a uh, weekly program for ranchers and students, and and the ranchers are filling the room, uh, uh, wanting to learn. A lot of them have conducted Rangeland Health already on their place, and they're they're wanting to learn uh, more things about it, how how to protect things better. Uh, they they know that. They know the difference between a degraded system and one that is in good health, and and they're using ecological site descriptions and state and transition models to to say I I'm, I'm trying to get this back to to where it should be, and in a lot of cases, I'll have to say that that degradation didn't occur by domestic livestock; it occurred by bison. Kip, I wanted to give an a. a- kind of a success story that's already happened because you talked about the decade for ecological restoration. And it turns out that some of the language was anti-grazing in in some of their literature. And in fact, some, so some of our people that are involved in the decade, that decade as well as the international year um, contacted them and worked with them on changing that language. And so now that that is not in 
in the description of the decade. So we're, we're reaching out in a variety of different ways to try to change some of these misconceptions. And we have um, the focus now is on what are we going to do? What kind of educational programming, what kind of outreach can we, can we do that will meet the information needs and interests of a variety of audiences so that we we don't just talk to ourselves in the academic community or even among ranchers, but we really reach out to, as as Jim said, the urban people who are living in urban settings and have not so much attachment maybe to rangelands. Um, and so now our focus is, is um, and our discussions are going on of where we're going to put our our uh, energies and, and time uh, in the coming years leading up to and during the international year. Yeah, that was something that I had not thought about before. Just uh, observing from the outside these international years, I realize now that there are, you know, a decade of work leading up to an international <laughs> year. You know, yes. we're sitting here in spring of 2022 talking about something that is almost four years away. Uh what are your thoughts about how we build up to that, you know, maintain some momentum without people forgetting about it, you know, then what's left to do during the international year? Do you guys have any thoughts on, on uh, what, uh, so I suppose on the one hand, you know, you could say that we've got a five-year run where because of the international right. year designation, we have the chance to talk about it kind of on the international stage for longer than just that one year. Absolutely. And in fact, we're already planning for each year. And then for the 12 months of the international year, we've already got plans in place for uh, 12 themes for during the international year. We had a meeting yesterday with the North American uh, support group for the IYRP. <clears throat> and we already are talking about things we can do right now, short term. And one of those is something you tipped, uh, brought to our attention, which is that extension professionals are getting called by media um, to, to talk about the international year and what it means to the to local communities. And so we're working on putting together uh, a little media packet to go out to extension um, right away <clears throat> and uh, working with compiling um, sort of messaging and slogans. Uh, some, and of course, we're really focused on social media, and we hope everyone will go to our social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and like us and share us. It's something everyone can do to help us. And then we're, of course, looking ahead to potentially uh, hosting a film festival of short films that we'll collect from around the, especially North America. And there's all kinds of, we're working on podcasts such as this one. And, uh, and also we're even exploring the idea of a full featured documentary on the rangelands of North America. And so we're going to, you're going to be hearing more about these, I think in future podcasts. Tip. You know, another good point uh, that Barbara makes when, when these years get designated by the United Nations, then a UN family member is given responsibility to lead that. Well, in this case, FAO uh, has been given the charge for the lead, but they have so many international years that they're dealing with that we've learned that they probably are not going to really take much activity or much action on this until 
2025. And so just the year before and one and, and then the year itself. And so we want to, and it's looking to us like it's really going to fall fall back or stay with the International Support Group or the International Steering Committee to keep this momentum going. And so what we've really tried to do is develop and have developed these 10 or 11 regional groups, regional international support groups around the world, so that each one of those regions then starts to develop their own plans, but also then to to uh, give that charge to individual countries within those regions because there's going to be different messages within each country, within each region. And so the, the emphasis for the next uh, several years is going to be really uh, gearing up those regional groups and those country groups to do their own planning for what is what are the significant messages that they need to deliver. Uh, Barbara mentioned the 12 monthly themes and, and out of necessity, of course, there was a, a title put to a certain month. But in a lot of cases, uh, for instance, women in, on rangelands, uh, in India, they, they have a particular month, month that they already uh, recognize women in agriculture. And that happens to be a different month <laughs> than the month that we had in our 12 monthly themes. So it's really going to be a, a matter of each country taking those 12 monthly themes and then putting them in the month that makes sense for their individual country. But so there, there's just a tremendous amount of effort that's going to have to take place over the next at least three years before FAO kicks in of volunteer activity from, from range folks and pastoral people around the world. So uh, we're needing a lot of help. Yeah, I could, I could say, Tip, um, a little bit about the 12 themes. Maybe that would be of interest um, because I think, and as Jim pointed out, they will be uh, adjusted according to the region's needs and interests, but but at least it gives a framework for starting out with just about how we did today, which is talking about in January, looking at the importance of rangelands, grasslands, and pastoralists, and sort of making those definitions to get everybody on the same page. Yeah, then, I would love to hear about that. I have not seen the 12 themes yet, and I think okay. one of the points of this, you know, as, as you know, the listenership for this podcast is mostly range people, ranchers and range professionals of various kinds. But I, I think one of our goals here is to help, um, <clears throat> help, help those of us who should be the ones doing the preaching to know what, what that message is. You know, what are the things that we need to communicate to the non-range world about what's going on? And I would love to hear about the 12 themes. Yeah, before Barbara says that, Tip, I think you've got a, made a very good point. We have to stop talking to ourselves. Uh, these podcasts are, are, are tremendous for us to, to understand the importance. And anyone that picks up the podcast needs to go to the Rotary Club, to the Chamber of Commerce meeting, to the bank, to the shoe store. Uh, stop Talk, uh, don't stop talking to the livestock organizations, but livestock organizations go to the Rotary Club. Well said. <laughs> yeah, Bob, it's all I'm, yours. <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, it's not only it's the the who and the what and the how um, that all has to come together here. I think, and that's what we're 
starting to tackle. Um, the themes, though, are sort of these overriding issues that we really want to bring to the fore and, and have more discussions um, with people from uh, different stakeholder groups so that we can have a conversation about these things and develop our own common knowledge, I think. So if we start out with kind of laying the groundwork of uh, the importance of rangelands, one of the big issues that Jim's already alluded to is land tenure, the whole issue of mobility, of being able to move your livestock around, which actually helps increase the health of the range. Um, then we go on to um, kind of the whole ecosystem services, which have been traditionally under undervalued for rangelands, and really having a, a, a better sense of what those ecosystem services are and how much they affect all of us. Um, then we have we certainly want to uh, have a very strong focus on climate change on the ability to work in, with variable climates. And this is something that rangeland stewards, ranchers have have considerable knowledge of and can help guide this, I think. Um, we have the whole idea of biodiversity, uh, ecosystem services, as I mentioned. Then we have the linkages to clean soil, to soils and clean water. Um, also, of course, the whole idea of livestock products and and some some of the new uh, I think what do you call it boutique kinds of resources uh, natural resources now I mean we're a lot of us are going to our farmers market every every Sunday and buying our local beef and um, and our organic vegetables and so forth uh, I think all of these things are part of this process of becoming more tied for all of us even those of us that live in an urban environment to be more tied to the land. Um, Jim's already mentioned pastoralist women. We also have a, a month we'd like to focus on youth and bringing youth into this um, program and getting them out, I think, to see and to participate and be a part of the uh, rangelands resources and the rural cl uh, culture. And then I think the final one was sustainable technologies and innovations. And these are the things that will help us uh, do even more soil improvement and uh, might be involved in renewable energy production and so forth. So we have a, a very ambitious outreach program that we'd like to see happen. And as Jim pointed out, we have 11 region regional groups working on this in their own regions. And um, the North American group is quite active and, and uh, lively and we're looking forward to working with everyone on on bringing these issues to the fore. You know, one of the uh, twelve monthly themes that I, I I think might be the most difficult is is the science behind good range management. Um, I think all of us, uh, ranchers, urban folks need to spend more time really learning the science uh, the behind uh, good grazing management, uh, carbon sequestration, uh, what happens in, in using the four principles of range management, proper numbers of livestock, proper season of use, proper kind and class of livestock and distribution. What does season of use 
do to changing the plant community to the plant community that you want to see for better uh, production from a livestock standpoint, but also from ecosystem services, uh, uh, hunting, uh, recreational opportunities, which a lot of ranchers are already involved in. So uh, ranchers know ecosystem services. They're taking advantage of that. But uh, uh, everyone needs to understand that there is science behind this stuff. Yeah, that's really important. And I think we didn't really speak to that until now. And, and really one of the things we want to do and that builds off that gap analysis that was produced through UNEP from, with members of our group is to really fill those knowledge gaps and, and um, have the science, have good science behind all of this. And there's been, I think, a lack of value and, and funding for this kind of research that we hope this international year will fill that gap as well. Yeah, I was just thinking that the last century has been uh, there's been yeah the 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 kind and the number of changes that have occurred is pretty breathtaking. I was initially thinking that it would be interesting to compare some kind of a rangeland health assessment, you know, for the this country if not others looking from 1926 to 2026. Uh, and I'm not sure what resources they might be to do that from 1926, but there were people looking at things back then. I was actually just interviewing uh, a couple of days ago uh, a man who was born in 1923 in eastern Montana. You know, grew up with nine kids in a shack that's half the size of my office room, and was describing the vegetation of that part of eastern Montana. And you could see from an ecological site description that what he was describing was really the, the third stage down in a degradation sequence uh, and was not representative of what had been there. And I think many places have uh, kind of come back to, you know, if not a reference state, at least to a, uh, a more functional state than what they were in, you know, going into the, uh, the Dust Bowl era where there was prolonged drought in much of the Great Plains. Uh, but I think there have been a ton of changes from primarily from improved scientific grazing management on rangelands all across this country anyway. And much of what we saw at that time was even the result of you know bad financial management, uh, not just uh, inadequate ideas about range management, but that comparison... I think would be useful and it highlights the importance of having a good understanding of plant communities and how to manage them. Absolutely, Tip. You know, um, Dick Hart wrote a great article in Rangeland several years ago uh, about what the country looked like when European settlers arrived, uh, when Lewis and Clark uh, came along and what what impact bison were and, and what terrible range condition things were in uh, because of, of, of that bison use. Uh, but there's a lot of photographic studies. Uh, Kendall Johnson did a great one for Utah, uh, long-term photo mm -hmm. points taken over, over 50 years difference or 80 years difference. Uh, there's been a great one in the Black Hills. There's a lot of those photographic studies that show us what things look like years ago and, and 
and looking at relic areas, what they could look like. And that's what uh, ecological site descriptions have been based on is, is uh, what, did it, what did it look like way back when it was hammered and what could it look like? And, and that's, that's where we're moving with state and transition models and, and the different plant communities that you just talked about in reference states and, and how many states, <laughs> how many plant communities down the line are you from where you could be? And that's the science that I think we all need to get involved with and understand that uh, that we 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 have the science there and we know how to move these plant communities into into stable systems and and uh, and 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 we just need to understand that science, all of us. You've alluded to it a little bit. Go ahead, Barb. I was just going to say, I just want to say that, yes, we need that good science, but we need it translated into good policy. And I think that's the, you know, the ultimate goal has to be overall, you know, if we change people's perceptions broadly, then that will translate into better policies that reflect, uh, you know, excellence in knowledge and and values people, values the land. And um, yeah, so... That's our ultimate hope here, I think. I think that is a significant point, uh, that policy is important. You know, we live in, in what is still a remarkably free country. I mean, we have environmental regulations that set some limits on things that can be done. But for the most part, uh, you know, landowners have a pretty free reign with, with what they are able to do or not do with their own land. And that's not the case everywhere else in the world. Rangeland sociologists have pointed out that rangelands and the people of rangelands are often marginalized, uh, meaning they're left or pushed to the margins of mainstream polite society and especially uh, positions of power. I think it's interesting that we even see some of that in uh, in something seemingly so mundane as a map, you know, where you look at a, a continental or a world map that often have, um, you know, the, what are considered these primary land uses or the <clears throat> higher value land uses like forest and cropland are in a an array of bright, interesting colors. And then you have <laughs> rangelands in varying shades of gray or crosshatch in the middle of this color. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the legend says barren land or uncultivated land. You know, it's, it's what it's not rather than, than what it is. And, you know, our language and our symbology, I think, betray some of these prejudices, at least internationally. And it is important to draw attention to people groups in other parts of the world that are don't have... We assume, I think what made me think of that is when we talk about science, we assume that we have the freedom to make decisions and take action based on what we see as applicable science. And... Not everywhere do people have that kind of agency, even if they had the information. Yeah, I, th- I think that's quite true, and and that's why we we have a we have this global view, but we also want to take it down to the local level. And so um, we have high hopes that we will address many misconceptions and lack of understanding about pastoralism and rangelands through this international year. 
One of the main messages to the general public will, will be to stay awake from North Platte to San Francisco and stay <laughs> awake from Mexico City to Edmonton because those lands are storing your carbon that you're emitting. Yeah, get back on Route 66 and drive it without cruise control. You know, another thing that's really quite a success story that I don't think very many people know about is what the, the work of groups like BirdLife have done in migratory bird habitat from the great all through the central great, great plains from Canada down through Mexico, working between environmentalists and ranchers and uh, agency officials and so forth. And um, because, the, as most of us have heard, that there lots of bird populations are dying out because of lack of habitat and because maybe those lands have been turned into or have been developed or have been uh, turned into cropland or something that has doesn't serve the wildlife population and, and migratory birds. And so we need these kind of collaborations and we see these successes in small, small ways. We need to expand that so that we, um, that we can address all of these major environmental challenges that we're all facing now. Well, in the interest of kind of wrapping this up, uh, do either of you have any parting comments on what can, what can I do? What can a, a listener do to help uh, promote this and spread the message? And Jim, you've already alluded to that a bit. Go talk about it with the people that are part of your everyday life uh, because it matters. Yeah, the one of the main messages, certainly that's the case, but we need everyone to join these um, country regional support groups and not only country, but state support groups or county support groups. And so uh, what would be important is for everybody to stay attuned to the website. And I'll, I'll leave that to Barbara to, uh, to, to guide people how to get there. But those websites and the sto storage places will be places for people to obtain messages and materials that they can take to the Chamber of Commerce and the Rotary Clubs and and, and then to gather together locally and, and decide on messages that are appropriate for your own community. Barbara, you want to explain that website deal? Yes. Um, we would love to have you use our IYRP.info website. Um, and we would love you to contribute to it. If you have um, stories to tell, if you're willing to do a vi little video clip that we could include, in our rangeland voices, if you have photos to share that you want to share of, of uh, some beautiful rangeland landscape or demonstrating some ecosystem service, we have a photo archive. We have a video archive. And we hope you'll go and enjoy those, but also contribute to them. And on the website as well, are the links to our social media. And of course, if you're involved in social media at all, we'd love you to uh, go in and become a friend and like us and share us. And so I think there's lots of ways for us to collaborate and share our own stories. And we hope that our website, um, again, will be one of those, the main mechanism for, for distributing that information. So keep watch of that. Uh, I think Tip's going to be doing some more podcasts, so you'll get some updates. And we look forward to being a part of this, of having all of us be a part of this effort. We will do that. Uh, 
and we'll we'll have a number of website links on the on the show notes section of your episode description, including the the main international year website as well as uh, some uh, websites that are not quite so easy to find, but that are also important. Jim and Barb, thank you. Thank you, Tip. Thank you, Tip. We appreciate your being a part of this. We certainly do. Very much so. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Thank you.